This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. It is the final episode for 2015. I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm joined with a massive group of people today in the studio. Uh, all the ones that weren't too sick or away came in. Dr. Diani, good morning. Hello. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Hello. Have to say. <laughs> it's your final show in the studio for quite a while. I know. I know. It's a little bit sad. My Heading off. Swan song today. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So she's uh, she's going south, folks. Can't handle the heat. She's going <laughs> On south. a day like today, yeah. I think everyone would be wanting <laughs> to move enough. to Hobart, right? Now, as a mystery person, I'm going to come back to you. Uh, Dr. Cromo, good morning. Also a slight mystery person. Good morning, Shane. You have a nice Star Wars t-shirt on, I, I <laughs> notice, with a sign on the back. <laughs> it says, no, I haven't seen it yet. Yep. <laughs> but they'll, they'll I need be... a partner, I need a body, a male body to go and see. Well, no, actually, that's just a presumption. I need a body to go and see Star Wars with. <laughs> All right. If, uh, if you'd like to see Star Wars with Dr. Cromo, call the studio Answers now. He'll, he'll take your calls. You have to be a subscriber. Um, <laughs> Can't we raffle that? Couldn't <laughs> we Jen. make some cash? <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. Oh, the phones have absolutely not lit up. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit sad. Uh, there'll be no Star Wars spoilers on this show show uh, today. Speaking of which, uh, Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Good to see you too. I, I, I have seen Star Wars. Yes, as have I. And as has Liv, who's sitting here as well doing our Twitter feed, but we will be keeping quiet. Marks out of 10? No, there is a secret code. There is a secret code. But there was an ad, I have to say, um, at Star Wars. People are going to see this ad soon. Nothing to do with Star Wars. It was um, about domestic violence. And did, did you guys see that ad? Dr. Ray? No, no it was, there. maybe it was just, I live in the northwestern suburbs, I don't know, maybe they put on there for a reason, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I uh, I have to say, since the the old Grim Reaper, Reaper AIDS ad, um, this is the most impressive ad I've seen. So to those who put that together, well done. Um, when people see it, I think they'll be, holy crap, this is a good ad. So yeah, very hmm, interesting. There's a lot of good things. Uh, now, we are, uh, what are we going to do today, folks? Um, first, oh, yeah. Settle down, Dr. Diani. She's getting excited. <laughs> first of all, um, I was about to say, um, first of all, we have a potential new recruit. We're actually trialling her out this week. Um, she is on try completely. Um, and no did you, uh, Dr. Ailey, as you'll be known. G'day, Shane. How's how are you going? Good. Um, my car's parked just outside. It got really dirty last night. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, you won't have to wash it. It's not part of the show. Um, however, uh, you, now you're a climatologist, essentially. I am, yes. A climate scientist from Monash University. Correct. Um, we'll never mention Monash again. It's part, part of being on the show, we don't mention where we're from because, you know, otherwise your opinions might be, you know, associated with those institutions and might not be good. But uh, you'll be with us in 2016. We thought we'd bring you in today to have a bit of fun. Absolutely. I'm really excited to be here and, yeah, little nervous about my trial. I should get a bucket for your car, is that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's only needed if you do badly. Um, and, and look, Jen still owes me about three washes from when she started. So, so. <laughs> Pick on me, why don't you? Thanks. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, you know, because you do such a good job down on um, the breakfasters. We, um, you know... We aspire to be on breakfast as Jen. Now, we're going to get into some science. What we're going to do, folks, is all the uh, members of the team today are going to talk about their biggest, favourite, most amazing piece of science that they've seen this year. I should mention um, a, a hello to Dr. Crystal, who's on a plane somewhere. She won't be in. Chris KP had a better offer, um, as he often does. I think it involved food, so that's fair enough for Chris KP. And um, Dr. Catherine, I think, has just gotten married, so she's um, doing other things. 
And uh, Dr. Lauren is unfortunately a bit unwell. So um, she had some surgery recently whilst at a conference in Germany. Talk about commitment to science. I think she had uh, quite a a terrible time, but she's back in Australia and and doing well, but was um, unfortunately a bit under the weather this morning. So gave me a message saying she wouldn't be in. So we hope she gets better very soon. Dr. Diani, what has caused you to leave this uh, fair large part of the country to head south in terms of science? Uh, well, I don't know that this had anything to do with that decision, actually. But one one story that was um, that was quite impressive this year was uh, called the Reproducibility Project. This is in uh, psychological sciences. Uh, there was a project led by a guy called Brian Nosek at the University of Virginia, and he got together 270 of his psychological science research colleagues and they um, said about repeating 100 different psychological studies. So it was an absolutely heroic effort and um, because they basically were having a bit of a crisis in psychological science, people sort of thinking, oh, I don't know if this is like really getting to, you know, I guess, the hard truth of questions that they were answering. And anyway, what they discovered was that only 36% of the replications uh, found a statistical significance, whereas, you know, the original 100 had 97 of those um, found um, statistical significance. And they also found that the effect sizes, so if you're measuring, you know, I don't know, how, how... angry does something make you? The effect size is like how much angrier does it make right, you? Yeah. So, so the, the, yeah, the effect size um, was around half um, those of the originals on average. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of interesting. What it does show is that, you know, I guess as a way, science is very um, good at being self-critical and mm. sort of putting itself under the microscope, which is really important. Uh, we don't really know whether... 36% replication rate is good, bad or otherwise, you know, is 36% what we would find in cancer studies, for instance, mm. Um, mm. or is it something that we're only going to find in psychological science where there's a lot of context-dependent things, people change, different, you know, that sort of thing. And in fact, cognitive science, which sort of measures, I guess, more of the you know, brain functioning type stuff, how we learn, how we, um, how our brain processes things, um, did better than social science, uh, social psychology. Um, yeah, again, it's it's interesting. Um, it was a great study. It was massive. And it's actually, well, there are now efforts uh, in other fields to do similar replication projects, such you, as cancer biology. You, you wonder how you'd feel if you were one of the one of the authors of one of the papers that was chosen to be in the 100. You'd yeah. be a bit nervous. Um. Well, actually, uh, only only three mm. authors of those original, oh, yeah, three groups of authors, I guess, um, didn't participate, like, didn't, oh, okay. didn't cooperate. Yeah. So, yeah, that's um, good. Yeah, and so, you know, readily provided um, the new researchers with, you know, materials and assistance mm. and and that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a really huge effort. Mm. Jeff? And on that theme, I noticed that the paper that had claimed that GM foods fed to rats gave them cancer was retracted 
this week because of simple lack of evidence. They had they reviewed the journal, reviewed the data, mm. and the numbers weren't high enough. So they made a call. They asked the researchers to withdraw. They refused, but they they made the huge decision to to withdraw that. So That's cited by many anti-GM. So people. is isn't that interesting? I mean, that paper kind of feels very much like a certain paper that came out many years ago linking autism and um, vaccinations. Mm. And you, you wonder, one one paper like that can have such a, a big impact on, on the way the world sees certain things. And, and you've got to hope that people would look at that and say, well, hang on, the scientific community said no to this now. Yeah. Um, it should, should never have happened, or it didn't happen in that case, but could go yeah. far. Always look out for reviews of reviews. Always look out for systematic reviews, things called mm. meta-analyses. Is it a review of a review? It, uh, is it a review of other papers? Mm. And if so, it's more more believable than a single study. Mm. All right. Uh, Dr. Jen, sorry, I can't wait to hear about your dinosaur stuff because it's pretty exciting news that came out this year because we were horrified. When people hear this, I'll know. We were horrified last year when, when um, things happened. I wasn't even going to talk about dinosaurs yet. I was going to do that later, but we can talk about dinosaurs. No, we're going to do it straight up. We're okay. going to get it out. Well, I think anybody who knows anything about dinosaurs, anyone who has a kid who knows anything about dinosaurs knows that there used to be this fra framed, famed brontosaurus, which we all loved. You know, one of these cool big sauropods, so massive long neck, massive long tail, huge vegetarian. We just can't fathom how big they were. But then we lost brontosaurus. So brontosaurus was originally described in 1879. And you can see the original specimen still if you go, I haven't been, but I'd love to, in um, Yale's Natural History Museum. But another big sauropod, um, Apatosaurus, had been named two years earlier in 1877. So when somebody came along in 1903 and compared those two dinosaurs and said, no, nah, sorry, they're the same thing, Apatosaurus got the glory because Apatosaurus had been named first. Yes. So Brontosaurus effectively went extinct all over again back in 1903, which, you know, I'm sure it was very sad about. It's sad <laughs> because, you know, in, so for those of you listening who are, let's say, north of 40, maybe 35. Back in our childhood days, we only really knew five dinosaur names. Not like the kids today that can name a hundred. Yes, yeah, seriously. We, and, and so one of the five was killed yeah, off. That I know. was a big it's deal. Like, what happened to like, my brontosaurus? Yeah, we only knew five. It was a big deal to lose one. But in April this year, the world was put back to right. It's okay, we could breathe again because a massive study that was hugely um, highly regarded because, you know, lots of studies come out and people immediately get out and say, no, no, I don't think it's right. I don't think it was well mm -hmm. done. I don't believe it. But from everything I could read, pretty much everyone said, no, this was a very well done study. It was massive. It was meticulous. It was a huge amount of work to do. It was a 300 page study that was published in April this year. And they analysed 477 different features of 18, sorry, of 81 different specimens of sauropods and came out and said, no, they are different. They are definitely different. And in fact, there are three different species of brontosaurus. So we've gone from one to three. They're different to a padosaurus. So Apparently one, it's all in the neck. One to none to three. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One to none to three. Apparently it's all in the neck. So a padosaurus mm. and brontosaurus have quite different necks. Um, brontosaurus is, is higher but less wide than a padosaurus. So next time you're walking down the street and you spot a big sauropod and, you know, you're trying to work out what it is, <laughs> just check out the neck. But but I think everyone felt good about this discovery because it was everyone in the field said it was good science, mm. they've done it properly and there are definitely differences there and we mm. can have our brontosaurus back. Well, one of the things I absolutely love about that story though is, and we've said this a few times over the last probably 10 years um, on the show, is that it again says this is a relatively young field of science. Yep, you know, totally. Paleontology is just 
blowing out of the water at the moment, the stuff that's being found, mm -hmm. just when you thought everything had been dug up, and especially with changes in climate, you know, yep. we're going to see a lot of stuff that we hadn't seen yeah, before, absolutely. not necessarily in a good way, but, um, you know, things will be exposed from, you know, where there's where there's ice that won't be there, and, you yep. know, it's in some of the glacial areas. And, and there was um, that whole new field of... Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it was called glacial paleontology mm -hmm. that started up. And it's a bit of an inappropriate term because actually um, glaciers are not where you tend to find these objects because they're moving. Yep. But um, in some of the frozen lakes and so forth are, are nearby, um, there is this mad rush for people mm. to, you know, they're, they're actually modelling now where where the climate is shifting the the ice layers the most, where we should so they look can go first. and look first because yeah. they just simply cannot look everywhere. There's yeah. enough people to look everywhere, which is just extraordinary. Well, I've I've got a cave story for later, a cave that we haven't oh. been able to get into before, and what we found. Love, so. love a good cave. We're yeah. also seeing a lot of different technology come into play where things that were actually developed, X-ray tomography for mm. trying to people actually were trying to analyze rock for petroleum reservoirs and look at the density differences there, but now they can actually find a fossil in a rock without even having to crack it open. Mm -hmm. Or if they yeah. say, oh, there's half a fossil, the rest is in the rock, they can actually get the full skeletal structure without pulling it out of the rock. Yeah. yeah, That's cool stuff. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We are talking about our favourite bits and pieces of science that have come out over the year. We have uh, our newbie, our rookie, Dr Ailey in the studio, um, climatologist, who's going to, not talk about climate ever again on the show. No, well, actually, we no, might. We might. <laughs> <laughs> but what's uh, well, what's climate's been awesome, what's been, man? Climate, climate is awesome. <laughs> actually, I will say, I will, will say that we made a promise about a year and a half ago that we would notch up all the climate stuff that we did on the show, which we've done. We interviewed Tim Flannery and many others this year on climate, and we've done a lot more on the on the subject. Um, so, having you in the studio next year, we we will talk about climate. Don't worry. We'll, good to hear. Good to hear. Yeah. But what what else has been uh, amazing for you in science this year? Anna? Well, for me, science this year has really been about Mars. Yep. And Mars is awesome. And um, the the whole, the findings that we've, we've got this year, and it wasn't just, you know, Matt Damon getting stuck on Mars, <laughs> as in The Martian, for those who have seen The yeah, Martian. Books, but... books better than the film, please. <laughs> Read the book. But no, this was kind of about the, what you would call kind of metaphorically the, the holy grail for scientists on Mars, and that was finding liquid water. And, you know, I say holy grail because, you know, the cup of life and all that kind of stuff. And this is really what scientists have been looking for is liquid water because as far as we know for, you know, life on Earth, liquid water is a, a really key ingredient. And so finding it on Mars kind of gives us more impetus to, to go and, and search for, you know, at least microbial life on the red planet. So... One of the reasons that uh, liquid water was was found and, and why it's so amazing is because the Martian surface isn't overly um, conducive to, to having liquid water. Mm -hmm. So Mars is really cold, right? Yep. It, it usually sits below freezing for most of the year. It's got these two giant ice caps. So I shouldn't say this is, this is not about finding water on Mars. We've known water is there in its solid form for a long time. But... Um, you know, it gets down to, I think it's been measured at minus 150 degrees Celsius Chilly. or something like that. So just a little cold. Sounds nice on Christmas. a day like this. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it does. Even if just for a few minutes. Yeah, it certainly yeah. does. But it does get up to kind of at the equator in, in summer, kind of 25, I think 35 degrees has even been recorded. So that's really good. So, but the other thing is that there's a very, very thin atmosphere on Mars. And so thin atmosphere means uh, that we've got very, very low atmospheric pressure, which means that water also evaporates really, really easily. So not only does water freeze at zero degrees Celsius, it evaporates at 10 degrees Celsius. Mm. So there's not a huge window at which liquid water can 
sit on Mars. So it's like, okay, well, where does this water come from then? So what happened this year was that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a satellite that's just been zooming around Mars for the past, I don't know, gosh, almost 10 years now, yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah, quite a while. Yeah, mm. quite a while. Well, it's been taking photos, quite high-resolution images, and a few years ago, scientists discovered these dark lines that were appearing on slopes kind of around craters and things like that. And they would appear in the summer and they would disappear in the winter and there were these kind of dark lines and it kind of looked like water dribbling down the sides of the craters. And I was like, whoa, in more detail. So they it's, it's hard though, isn't it? Because you've got, you've got to look, you can't look at Mars through Earth eyes. No, you can't. I mean, you, you can in terms of some of the geological processes. Absolutely. But you can't just say, oh, that looks like water in there, I guess water in there. No, doesn't, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Work. Because it could be something as simple as, you know, like a mini avalanche in which the, mm. the top soil is kind of quite a light colour, the soil underneath is quite a dark colour and, you know, something dislodges that soil, you've got the dark stuff, could just be that, right? So what they did was look at it with another instrument called a spectrometer, and that basically um, allows you to look at the composition of the materials at the surface as well. And that's when things got interesting. So what they found was that these recurrent slope linae, which are basically oh, yeah. the dark lines. Yep. I love yep. the jargon. It's <laughs> yeah. brilliant. Recurrent <laughs> slope linae, but dark lines. The RS. Elves. Yes, the, the RSLs. RSLs. Hey, that, that, oh, that sounds, sounds like a good idea. Wrong, <laughs> that one's already taken me. Yeah. Uh. yeah, that's right. So anyway, these dark lines were full of these things um, called hydrated perchlorates, another piece of jargon for you. So these perchlorates, basically what they are, are salts. Okay, so they're just like those little sachets, those desiccant sachets that you get in uh, kind of foodstuffs so that your food mm. doesn't go mouldy and it sucks up all the water. Fundamentally, the same thing. Uh, it's what these things are. So what they think is going on is that water vapour is condensing um, in exactly the right conditions during the summer onto these perchlorates. And these perchlorates can actually uh, kind of host liquid water at much lower temperatures, just like the ocean doesn't freeze until kind of minus one, minus two degrees Celsius because it's full of salt. These can keep water in its liquid form until, in some cases, depending on the perchlorate, up to minus 70 degrees, wow. you can still get liquid water. That's cool. Yeah, it's really mm. cool. And so what they think is that perhaps these uh, waters condensing underneath the surface um, and we're getting what we call subsurface flow, so water just flowing underneath the surface and that's wicking through to the surface. And so, yeah... That's the liquid water. That's where wow. it's coming from at below freezing. That's what they think is happening. There's still a lot to discover on this and, and have a look at. But it's yeah, cool. it's super cool. cool. Uh, one thing you, you mentioned about the fine temperature window and then the idea of, of uh, lower uh, freezing point lowering. Isn't there also a, a heat transfer aspect to this as well? And the example I'm thinking of is I, I have colleagues that have gone down to Australia, the Antarctic Station, and they have examples of people sunbathing. Uh, out on a chair on the ice with confused penguins looking at them while it's still minus four outside, but they're warm simply from the radiative heat from the sun, not mm. the air temperature. Absolutely. And so, and that's so that why would they, contribute. Yeah, that's why they think it's kind of at the surface. It's not, yeah, it's, it's not, not about, yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not raining or anything like that. It's more like mm. kind of dew forming. And that's because the surface, what we call, what we would call the skin temperature, mm. literally, because it's, it's at the skin of the, the planet on the surface. That's the one that can get up to kind of, 35 or, or higher degrees. And so what they also find is during the day, these things, that's when they think it happens. And at night, it just all evaporates again because it gets too cold. Oh, that's very cool. And of course, Mars has seasons. So it does, like the Earth, which, which makes um, makes for this a more interesting yeah. scenario because it means in certain times of year, yeah. you'd see this in certain locales. Absolutely. And then in other times of year, you wouldn't because yeah. that window of so, temperature is very specific. Yeah, so Mars doesn't have a moon. So it's a giant wobble as well. So the seasons mm. change 
it's really interesting. Martian, I'll oh, see, I'm getting well, to climate again. Martian, <laughs> Martian climate is, uh, getting, is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, in it's, it's very, Martian climate. Yeah. Yeah, so you're back in climate. Yeah, maybe, I know. <laughs> I know, I can't help myself. Can't help myself. That's all right. We'll, we'll, I think we'll, we might even come back to climate when I do my bit later. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Cromo, what have you got for us? Well, first of all, I have in front of me a list of all those uh, of all those prime ministers around the world that have that have committed science uh, that have committed time and money and in fact uh, uh, ministers to science and it starts with Justin Trudeau and then ends there <laughs> so we can only emulate what's been happening in I was going to say in, I, have, in I have a similar, similar list of those who can spell it <laughs> yes <laughs> it's a short list yeah. Um, so yeah great great what's happening and for human rights as well mm. um, my um, um, things of the year are, are bugs, the bugs that live within us and without us as well. Um, and I was impressed by a couple of studies uh, this year. One that that's kind of could freak you out, it freaked me out, is that, you know, when you have flies, I mean, most of you will be experiencing flies today. They, they're just mm. trying to get into you, aren't they? And you think they're trying to get into me, lay eggs, and they're just waiting for me to die. I'm lay eggs in me. Well, if you're a pessimist like me, but <laughs> a realist. I'm more, I'm more but, concerned about my, my actually almost said a word there that would get me in trouble. Um, I'm more concerned about the food off the barbecue oh, than right. sitting on that. Um, but um, there are bugs wait, just waiting for you to die, lurking in the soil, no matter where yeah. you're in the Sahara Desert or in the tundra. Um, or in fact, around the, around, the, around the suburbs of Melbourne, that just lurk there and don't do anything else apart from decompose you. And there was a study, believe it or not, done that actually put dead mice around, the freshly killed mice around the world, not humans, but there are human body farms that, that they looked at this in parallel. They thought you were digested from within when you died. Of course, there's all the big things like flies and all the other stuff yeah. uh, yeah. that do it you, but eventually you get kind of um, in, in a state where you, you can be di you are digested by bugs, but they actually come up from the soil to digest you, the same bugs wherever you are in the world. And um, which bugs are on you can actually, it's not just, um, not just, I'm going to say not just a, a pretty picture, but... Um, but also can be used for forensic purposes. So if you look at someone's, you know, um, uh, bug content, and you can sequence the hell out of those um, to find the bug content, and that will help forensic pathologists to actually find out um, when you died. And you mm. can look at a specific group of these bugs that actually help tell you where you died as well. So these bugs are used for a whole lot of stuff. Is there a moral here like don't fall asleep outside the world? Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, don't who's fallen still? asleep outside and got ants and, and got ants crawling all <laughs> don't, over the Don't stand before. still with bare feet. <laughs> you kind of feel like that. I can see a science fiction movie or, in there somewhere or ba too. Bathe regularly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, not bathe regularly. Well, bathe with water, but not too much with detergents because yeah. you 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 never use an antiseptic wash. You're actually washing off the good mm. ones. Too. Are you still in the no no shampoo hair wash yep. area? Yeah, I'm it's been still, about eight years, hasn't I, I'm just about, I've got my uh, U-Biome kit and I'm just about to swab my skin to see uh, what I compare like to other people. <laughs> <laughs> we're, all we, we're all leaning away from yeah. Dr. Yeah. Kramer right now. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. It's our last show for the year, folks. We've got about 28 minutes to go and then 
well, we've got a special surprise later in the show. But uh, Dr. Ray, what has uh, blown you away this year in science? Dr. Shane, there's, there's been a couple exciting things, but when I was, I, I took a moment to look at the the top science list that some of the news journals put out and uh, particularly a scientific magazine saying, what are the top discoveries? And in that was one that I was excited about, not because it just, it was cool, but it was, and, and had, I think, a, a, a global impact in its area, but it was all Australian. That uh, what we're talking about is the Spanish, 54-year-old Spanish cancer patient who received a 3D-printed sternum and ribs. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, that um, because he didn't have one anymore from a very large chest tumor. Uh, and, and what's amazing about this was it was actually designed and manufactured in Australia. Uh, and it's really from this company called Anatomics, who actually 3D printing is just one of the techniques, but they develop technologies and expertise in taking CT scans to design implants for replacing bone in different parts of the face. And, and before it was just machine things, but now that we have 3D printing, they've gotten so sophisticated that working with CSIRO, who has a, has a very advanced expertise in printing metals, um, 3D printed this chest and sternum. And, and so they never saw the patient. They got the CT scan mm. um, from the other side of the world, designed it with anatomics, worked with CSIRO, printed it, sent it back to the surgeons, and then implanted it in the person. Uh, so it was kind of like, we'll fax you what we need and you can send us it back. And, you know, I guess the FedEx thing worked out okay too because they got it in time. <laughs> they got it in time. Uh, um, I would have and, thought uh, someone sort of take that as carry on, yeah. you know, guard yeah. it with their life kind I, of thing. I, I mean, it's pretty amazing because it was such a large piece. This is building on anatomics mm. and CSIRO's earlier success replacing somebody's heel bone mm. so they could actually walk because the part of the person, the bone they'd lost actually meant they would have had to amputate the foot. Instead, they were able to replace this part of the bone. But this was, I mean, this is the largest implant they've done for 3D printing so far. So that's a pretty neat showing of how it's not 3D printing to make toys or for the sake of 3D printing, but integrating it in technologies, you can actually do things you couldn't do with normal fabrication. That's super cool. Do you know what I look forward to? Uh, maybe this is 10 years, 20 years off the day when we just call it printing. Because I, <laughs> yeah. I think that'll come, right? You know, people used to... You know, it was, this sort of happened with, um, you know, you talk about a laser printing and you talk about bubble jet printing and everything, you know, dot matrix printing, for those of you older in the audience. Um, you know, that was that was all there. And, and at some stage, we're just going to call this printing because yeah. it will become the, the new norm of, um, of printing, which is pretty exciting. Mm, cool stuff. Dr. Jen. Yeah, Round I, two, what do you got? Well, I had to talk a bit more about fossils because, you know, I knew you guys would be talking about Mars and other spacey things. And so I wanted to go back down into the ground. But there's actually a really interesting discovery that came out of um, a cave this year. And that is a new species of ancient human was named and published, Homo nadelli. So the Homo, we're obviously Homo sapiens. There's lots of Homos and this was Homo nadelli. Nadelli means star in the local South African language. And these specimens came out of the rising star cave, which is about 50k from Johannesburg in South Africa. And essentially, it's a really interesting specimen because it looks like it was uh, walking on two legs, but also had certain characteristics which suggest it was good at climbing in trees as well. A very small brain, but quite modern looking hands that suggested um, tool making. So a really interesting mix of mm. characteristics. So what they found were 1,500 pieces of bone from at least 15 different individuals, from in infants right up to very old um, individuals. 
the bones haven't been dated yet because they were in soil inside a cave and that makes them really hard to date. And processes that are possible, like carbon dating, will be done in future, but that will involve destroying the bones. So they don't want to do that until they've been, you know, completely right. studied. Yep. But there's a whole lot of other stuff that went on. So basically the story is to say we've got this new species. It was long-legged. It was gangly. Um, males were about five foot. Females were a little bit shorter with this really interesting mix of kind of ape-like and modern human features. So very small, simple teeth, an ape-like chest, um, as I said, modern hands, which looked like they'd be suited to tool technology, feet and ankles suited to walking upright, um, fingers that are curved, which is where the kind of tree stuff comes into it, but this really small brain, kind of gorilla-sized brain. So one part of the science story was that, but then there was this whole, another whole part which fascinated me, which was how it kind of got reported. So anyone who knows anything about fossil finds, it can take a decade for the mm. news to come to light. It can be one specimen that is studied for, you know, 6, 8, 10, 12 years. It comes out in a highly prestigious journal. This was done really differently and they copped a lot of flack. So this was in a cave that the entrance to the cave is this tiny fissure that's only 20 centimetres wide. And the person who basically ran the whole study, he was very involved with um, National Geographic. So from the very beginning, there were cameras operating and there was huge pressure to publish. So there was none mm. of this decade thing. And a lot of people argued, no, that spoiled the whole thing. Because the entrance was so narrow, he said, we need small uh, framed females to actually do the excavation work. Some people said, yeah, that makes sense. Other people said, that's ridiculous. There are tiny men out there. Why do you have to get women? Is this just a camera stunt? Was it just, you know, the whole media mm, circus kind yes. of thing? So there were these six young, early career scientist women who squeezed through, and this video footage of it, squeezed through this tiny entrance to get into the cave. Was it just, you know, a ploy? Was it? Who knows? Was the science good? You know, it was. The, it, it ended up being published in reputable journals. I just found the whole thing really interesting how it yeah. was done. So other people are saying, no, they're just examples of homo erectus. Other people are saying, no, they're new. Um, but one of the things I really liked was the lead scientist got a lot of young early career scientists together for 30 days. They sat in a room with these 1,500 specimens and worked out what to, you know, what they were going to do about it. And he got dubbed as this was an example of paleo democracy, as in we didn't just get all the old farts in a room. We got mm. all the early career scientists who were interested, and they were the ones who got to kind of you know study these fossils. And they provided the necessary information for anyone in the world to 3D print any fossil so that people could. Study them at, at leisure. So very interesting science. Maybe this is the new way for paleontology. Yeah, it doesn't hurt for them to change a little, does it? Well, you know, I, that's what changes. I kind of think. As long as the science is still good and done, you know, and is contestable and, mm. and non-falsifiable in, in the sense of it being well well yeah, investigated. Exactly. Who cares? Yeah. So I think you know, it's exciting. It yeah. So we just need the dating to happen so yeah, we can know could. where they fit in our family yeah. tree. Wouldn't have hurt to squeeze a couple of small dudes in there with the ladies though as well. That <laughs> might that might that might have. Uh, Put some of the, uh, the, the naysayers at ease. <laughs> at ease. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Diani, yeah. round two. Well, this is another story that has hit the papers, and I don't know. Almost every every week, you come across a new feature article on CRISPR, which is a gene editing tool that is, uh, yeah, seemingly everywhere this year. Mm. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats which is why people prefer to just call it CRISPR. <laughs> no doubt. And, and what it is, it's a, it's a gene editing tool that makes very specific edits to DNA and it uses a, an RNA guide so you know exactly where that edit is going to be and you can, you know, cut and paste 
pretty much like you would a Word document mm. on, on a computer screen. And uh, it's been adapted from uh, the bacterial, a bacterial immune system, which is also pretty cool. Um, but because it's so easy to use, it's so cheap, it means it's incredibly accessible. Basically, any molecular biology lab has the ability to use this, um, this technique now. And so it's been put to use in every organism imaginable. And this has had enormous ramifications and even opened quite a Pandora's box um, ethics-wise. Uh, so some of the things that have been done this year, uh, it's been used to uh, create a gene drive, which is where you load the dice of inheritance um, in a population. So let's say you've got mosquitoes that might mm. carry malaria, and then you can you know, introduce a gene into those mosquitoes so that in the population, they will more often than would normally be the case um, pass on a gene that might uh, make those mosquitoes infertile, for instance. So these things are, you know, really cool. You sort of go, wow, that, that would, you know, really change how, um, how readily they, that malaria can be um, transmitted in a population of mosquitoes. But also, holy shit, what's going to happen yeah. ecologically when you let these things loose? Yeah, and you pass, <laughs> you, you're literally passing on from one generation. You're changing the species. Literally. That's right. And, yeah. and so the, the other thing that has been really, uh, you know, kind of freaky is um, germline modification. So genetically engineering uh, a human embryo. This happened in China earlier this year. And, um, and this is obviously quite freaky and a very big ethical um, you know, red flag, because if you change uh, an embryo's DNA, then you are changing every person that that person, you, that person produces. produces. Mm. Exactly. It, it modifies mm. the germline. Um, now, the group in China, they were very quick to point out that they, um, you know, they modified a, a non-viable embryo. These were discarded from uh, fertility clinics. Uh, and also their study was uh, really highlighting some of the difficulties in in, chat, in uh, using this technique uh, in human embryos. But in any case, uh, all of these ethical issues that CRISPR has thrown up led to a summit about a month ago where, you know, leading researchers and ethicists got together to say, you know, okay, what are we going to do about this? Mm. Do we put a mor mm. moratorium on everything? And uh, yeah, so... So this is why this, uh, yeah, it's a huge uh, science story for this year, and it's been everywhere. Yeah, and we'll, and and we're just at the begin beginning of it too. I think yeah, so. it's we'll one of those ones we're going to hear yep. a lot more. <laughs> well, uh, I have to say, I couldn't. Uh, I was a bit like Alien. I couldn't go past uh, things that are happening in outer space. Um, uh, you know, I remember the days when we thought Pluto was a boring, frozen. Mm -hmm crap ball that people relegated to non-planet status. And then New Horizons came and did what I would refer to right now as a half-baked job. And I say that because only less than half of the data has got back to us yet. So, you know, we're not even at the halfway mark of what we can learn about Pluto, but it is this extraordinarily dynamic, incredible you know, body out in the solar system that we've we've learnt, you know, is not this, you know, sort of standard sort of moon looking like boring object, but has all these features. It has mountains that are bigger than ours. It has, you know, valleys that are deeper than our biggest ones. It has, you know, flows and movement and so forth that makes the stuff on Mars boring. Sorry, Ailey. <laughs> hey, <Yeah>. come on. <laughs> yeah, has, Wars. Star yeah, Wars. No. Yeah, it has all this incredible has all this incredible um dynamic, you know, and so forth to it that we just never imagined could be there. 
all because of this one amazing craft. And, you know, that's sort of been shot out into, you know, fastest sort of exit from our orbit in, in history, you know, shot out, uh, you know, a decade ago to go and look at this thing, uh, look at this this former planet. Um, I reckon it will come back as a planet. but And, and its system, and, and keeping in mind, we didn't even know how many moons Pluto had when we launched New Horizons. And, you know, we now know there are five and, and Sharon, the biggest one, is, is also pretty interesting. And Pluto has this incredible atmosphere with methane and all this. It's just, to me, it's been one of the, you know, one of those big things that's happened this year where we've suddenly taken the last member of the solar system that we really knew nothing about and just exploded our knowledge in, at, at a level almost beyond any other planet except for Earth and Mars. We, we pro- Maybe Saturn, you know, Cassini's been around Saturn, you know, the old bus that's still flying around there. Um, you know, but this is an incredible amount of data. So we're not halfway there yet, folks, in terms of the data. So there's still more than half of the data still to be transmitted back. And transmission rates are pretty low. But um, New Horizons is still going to send us a lot of stuff and we'll hopefully look at other objects, you know, in the next sort of couple of decades um, as well, even further out. So for me, that's been one of the massive ones is the uh, the change in status of Pluto back to being pretty much the most interesting planet in the solar system. And I include Earth in that group. So but we're a little bit interesting, so... Yeah, interesting planet. This is going to be like the Brontosaurus, right? We're going to have oh, a, a comeback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right, Ali. I think it'll, it'll be back. It'll be back. So, it's, so Pluto's no longer a Mickey Mouse planet. <laughs> oh, Jeff, why oh. don't I bring you in? <laughs> I think we need to make team T-shirts. You know, we love Pluto. Pluto and Brontosaurus. Yeah, yeah. We can get they can be our mascots. They were gone and they're back better they're than better. ever. They are better than ever. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now, we have in the studio... Uh, couple of guests which have been in the studio before. We have Sally Sherwin and Marissa Parrott. Welcome, ladies. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Yeah, good. Lovely to be here again. Now, you two, are, you're both from Zoos Victoria. You're still both working for Zoos Victoria? Yeah, yeah. We're um, we're actually pod buddies as well. So pod, we're, what does that we're mean? We're in the same little pod in our office. So um, oh, okay. Sorry, we're going to be very sick of each other by the end of summer, I think. But oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think we'll just have a lot of fun on radio and carry it on into the office. So, it'll be so great. when you say pod buddies, I'm probably like Dr. Ray. Watch too much science fiction. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was really somehow confused. oozed out together. Um, now, well, then I thought it was like sharing some type of Apple product. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, not body snatching. Yeah, yeah, not body snatching. Now, um, last year. You guys did the um, the Animal Collective, which was our fill-in show. So while we're away and people are freaking out because they're not getting any science, you guys still gave them science. You, you did um, that last year. So tell us a bit about the Animal Collective. What do you do? Yeah, we did. So last year, um, it was it was me, Claire Fitzgerald, and a, a vet called Vanessa that came in, and and the theme of the show is pretty much anything to do with animals. So we've kind of run with that again this summer, and again, obviously, being Animal collect- Collective, we're focusing on all things animals and exploring uh, the world that is animals around us. But Marissa mm-hmm. and I, both being scientists in different fields, so I'm a welfare scientist. Marissa is a reproductive and conservation biologist. Um, we get also getting another vet in and Jess as well and we're going to yeah delve deeper into the world of the animals but inject a lot of science along the way well mm. cool science we think any animal science is fun and, and people people can call up with their animal problems that's yeah. right so we're going to be talking about all things pets wildlife farm animals tourism the topical T- things tourism. Are, that's that right work? responsible pets and tourism oh, okay. responsible Sorry, wildlife I, I and I was tourism still in the group 
tourists as animals. Well, you never know. You never know. Yeah. But uh, anything animal related and the animals that are around us is what we're going to be looking at. So people can call up if they have questions about their pets, questions about wildlife, any of those kind of things. Okay. So uh, I would think that would be pretty exciting this summer. I have a colleague who keeps bees and he's already talking about how he's having to go out and feed them and there's no honey production and just the impact on animals around us in a, in a drought year would be pretty, have some pretty interesting discussions of things you hadn't thought of when he told me he had to feed his beehives. I kind of went, oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that when they were down on rainwater. Yeah. It's yeah. very true. And it's so topical at the moment with the heat wave we're having. Our first show is going to be surviving the silly season yeah. for pets and for wildlife. What to do with the heat, the fireworks, the, all that Christmas yeah. food, um, all those kind yeah. of issues that are coming up at this time of year. Fireworks are fun for people, folks, not for dogs. Keep that in mind. So I saw a post on Facebook this week that's where someone, um, someone put a a bowl of water and a piece of watermelon out and said that was for the that was for the wildlife is that if we live if we live near wildlife or well, i guess there's wildlife in all our gardens is that something that we can do on these really hot days yeah that's um that's a really good point i know i mean even just on the drive on the way here i saw magpies just trying to drink any little bit from the puddles and mm. with their mouths open looking like they're panting they're obviously struggling and under a lot of heat stress so anything we can do to help that um which is you know putting out bowls of water always in shade areas but not too big because there is risk of drowning and things like that so if you have if you need to put a lot out put a bucket or something with a stick in the middle that's a good tip because most animals will climb out from the stick if they do get stuck in but um yeah leave out water just yeah again make sure it's in in shade but you know animals are you know built to to deal with this kind of heat it's just good old climate change that makes it a lot more difficult for us and them as well so mm. now, let's try out this callback thing uh i'll, I'll do the Caller, um, <laughs> it's a serious do. problem. I don't have to wait until next week. Uh, we've got a new little budgie. He's, uh, you know, he's only about probably ten weeks old. You know, we're training him to come out of the cage and all this sort of stuff. He tends to like to hang off the top of the cage upside down. He even sleeps that way sometimes, and he seems to have absolutely no bloody balance whatsoever. What do I do? <laughs> well, he's just a baby bird, so he's learning how to get his balance. It's sort of like your gangly teenagers. Mm. Um, so this is actually really natural behaviour for animals like budgies. They are little acrobats. They do like to hang upside down. They do like to play and be really interactive. And so as long as you're training him with some positive rewards and making it a really fun experience for him, he sounds like a very normal, happy bird. Well, that sounds good because I was a bit worried about this budgie because it, it was like it's like I bought a drunk budgie. It, it was, it was like, pining for the fields, maybe. Yeah, like he was just permanently, you know, off his face. Have, and, you, got and, a, have you got enough perches, normal perches, horizontal perches for him? Oh, there's a lot of perches. Just, yeah, there's, right? he's, he's got about four perches. So, oh, right. And... Uh, I had him on my finger out of the cage and he just kind of <laughs> fell off. <laughs> and he looked a little stunned for a little while, actually, after I picked him up. He said, yeah, just, yeah, he's just a little bit uh, unco. And um, I thought there might have been something wrong with him. He's a no. special child. If you are concerned about your pets, you can always take them to a vet to get checked out. So for a peace of mind, it's well worth the trip in. And it's probably a good idea for any of the new pets at this time of year to take them in for a checkup, make sure they're healthy and they're normal. Yours just sounds like a special child. Yeah, if symptoms persist, folks, <laughs> consult your physician. There's a disclaimer right there. Exactly. <laughs> now, tell us about that. What sort of guests are you guys going to be having on? Because, I mean, you're both embedded in um, all this stuff at Zoos Victoria and so forth. So who, who should we look forward to hearing from, say, next week? 
So we've got uh, we've got a real mix. We've we're we're trying to theme each of the episodes um, to delve a little bit deeper into a particular group of animals that we're surrounded by. So there's urban wildlife, there's pets, there's farm animals. So each there's we're doing one on um, marine coastal environments, which is going to be pretty fun. So each of those segments uh, or themed episodes has a particular expert that we know that yeah. works in that space. So cool. um, we've got yeah a lot of. Uh, welfare scientists, which may have been my influence, but they're <laughs> interesting people. Um, who else do we have, We have some fantastic people coming in talking again about those really topical themes for the summer. So we have a snake expert who'll be talking about the kind of work that he mm. does and the experiences he has with snakes, how to live in harmony with them. We're going to be talking to some of our coastal experts around how to have fun out in that marine area without negatively influencing our marine mammals and our birds. Uh, we've got a, a fantastic of people coming in so if you tune in every week you'll hear a wonderful topic and a wonderful guest sounds good well um good luck with the show don't do too good a job because we, we want to come back. You know, it's always a risk with the summer fills. Uh, if they do an amazing job, you know, they might, Triple I might say, mm, you know, I don't know if we should get those Einstein guys back there a bit dull. Um, but have a great time over summer and thank you for filling in our slot for us. And um, we hope all the listeners keep uh, tuning in over the break because we're, we're off until sort of early February. So you guys uh, have a good time. Yeah, we will. Looking forward to it. All we right. are. We hope everyone will give us a good call and we can chat through some great animal topics. Excellent. Fantastic. Now, I should say a few thank yous to people before we go. Um, first of all, Triple R for all their support and for keeping us on air. In particular, Elizabeth for sorting out so many of our many guests this year. She's been absolutely fantastic. To the radiotherapy team who is on before us for finishing pretty much on time every week. They've been good and they always say very nice things about us. They're a great group of people. Um, to the enormous and fabulous team of podcasts that we have doing the show for us. It makes a huge difference that you put in the time um, to, to put those podcasts up for, for many of the people who can't listen live. And we appreciate that. And of course, Dr. Fiona, who's no longer on air, she hasn't been on air for many years, but continues to coordinate the show for us, which is a huge effort and um, and a great burden that I don't have to take on, which is fantastic. Um, also, Amy Shira-Title, who uh, is from California, and Beth Healy from the European Space Agency, who was based at Concordia Base in Antarctica for being our routine and ongoing guests all year. We thank both of them. To all the institutions and guests that we've had on uh, throughout the year, RMIT, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, um, the Walter Eliza Hall Institute, the Flory Institute, the Latrobe University, Deakin University, Swinburne University, Monash University, University of Melbourne, the Centre for Eye Research Australia, um, to Tim Flannery and his team who, who did our live audience session, which was a huge success. Thank you, Tim and co. And to all the other various groups and organisations that we've missed, of which there are many, um, thanks so much for providing all your guests to us. The show wouldn't run without that and we do appreciate it. Um, to all the listeners who supported, and, and, and non-listeners, I should say, and people in the studio right now, who supported um, the show and Triple R through the Radiothon, it was a record year for us, and we thank everyone for doing that, because without your support, um, this station might have the same struggles that uh, Radio, Radio Adelaide is com- currently having. Um, so get on board that campaign if you haven't seen that. They're, they're struggling with the um, University of Adelaide uh, withdrawing some support. Um, in particular, to my, my team here, the Einstein and Gogo team, to Dr. Lauren, Dr. Diani, we'll see you in a few years and we'll call you. Um, Happy to be the Hobart correspondent. Yeah, you'll be the Hobart correspondent. Uh, Dr. Crystal, Chris KP, uh, Dr. Cromo, always wears an interesting T-shirt, um, Dr. Ray, Dr. Jenny, uh, Dr. Catherine, uh, our new uh, 
person, Dr. Ailey, um, who's going to be in next year. And uh, a big special thank you to Liv for doing our Twitter feed every week. And a big thanks to Dr. Shane for organising us all. So we come and do, you know, we talk to people and we come on time and we have just just the most amazing list of guests this year. On you, Shane. Thank you, Dan. It's like herding cats, but you do it well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, use a big stick. Um, Hey, it felt more like a cattle prod to me. Yeah. Let's be careful. There's some animal welfare issues. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, a massive thank you to all of you for listening to our program. It really is a privilege to be able to do this every week on Triple R. And I'd like to finish the year by saying have a very, very safe holidays. We'll see you back in February. And remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.